0: The Lord your God brings you into the land you are entering to possess and drives out before you many nations, the Hittites, Gergeshites, Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites, seven nations larger and stronger than you. And when the Lord your God has delivered them over to you and you have defeated them, then you must destroy them totally. Make no treaty with them. And show them no mercy do not intermarry with them do not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons for they will turn your children away from following me to serve other gods and the Lord's anger will burn against you and will quickly destroy you this Is what you are to do to them. Break down their altars, smash their sacred stones, cut down their Asherah poles, and burn their idols in the fire. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you out of all the peoples on the face of the earth to be his people his treasured possession. The Lord did not set his affection on you and choose you because you were more numerous than other peoples, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it was because the Lord loved you and kept the oath he swore to your ancestors that he brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the land of slavery from the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know therefore, that the Lord your God is God. He is the faithful God, keeping his covenant of love to a thousand generations of those who love him and keep his commandments. But those who hate him, he will repay to their face by destruction. He will not be slow to repay to their face those who hate him therefore take care to follow the commands decrees and laws i give you today if you pay attention to these laws and are careful to follow them then the lord your god will keep his covenant of love with you as he swore to your ancestors you may say to yourselves these nations are stronger than we are How can we drive them out? But do not be afraid of them. Remember what the Lord your God did to Pharaoh and to all Egypt. You saw with your own eyes the great trials, the signs and wonders, the mighty hand and outstretched arm with which the Lord your God brought you out. The Lord your God will do the same to all the peoples you now fear. Moreover, the Lord your God will send the hornet among them until even the survivors who hide from you have perished. Do not be terrified by them, for the Lord your God who is among you is a great and awesome God. The Lord your God will drive out those nations before you little by little. You will not be allowed to eliminate them all at once, or the wild animals will multiply around you. But the Lord your God will deliver them over to you throwing them into great confusion until they are destroyed he will give their kings into your hand and you will wipe out their names from under heaven no one will be able to stand up against you you will destroy them the images of their gods you are to burn in the fire do not covet the silver and gold on them, and do not take it for yourselves, or you will be ensnared by it, for it is detestable to the Lord your God. Do not bring a detestable thing into your house, or you like it will be set apart for destruction. Regard it as vile and utterly detested, for it is set
1: apart for destruction. Thanks, Pastor Carlos. Um, We are in a series, as Pastor Carlos mentioned, called It's Complicated. And the purpose of It's Complicated was to really hone in on some things that we really don't want to preach about and then preach about them, Um, things that Christians really don't like to talk about. And talk about them, or or things that that at least on on one hand, maybe believers believe, but have a very difficult time gelling and verbalizing that into some type of a conversation with someone on the outside, things that, in all honesty, push people further away from the Lord than closer to Him um, because of their conceptions of that, and this week is no different. This week, we're talking about, uh, I don't think I can believe in the genocidal God of the Old Testament, I think the original title was that we had was, I don't think I can believe in the mean and angry genocidal God of the Old Testament, but that's how we shortened it. And this is something that is, whether you are a high school student heading off to college, or you're someone in the workplace, or you've done a fair amount of reading either in the Bible or outside of the Bible, you've run across this objection, either yourself or somebody else. And and this has been something where you're like, yeah, you know what? Last year when we were reading through the whole Bible in 90 days, we were preaching through it. It got a little rough there in Deuteronomy and Joshua and just describing what in the world God was calling his people to do and laying just basically this, this army of God coming through and just seemingly massacring every living thing, old, young, livestock, it doesn't matter which, whoosh, just a, a massive like brushstroke of violence and bloodshed all throughout that period of the Bible. It's difficult for us to, I mean, every commentator and scholar that I read on this says, yeah, this one's tough. I mean, even guys that are like, yeah. And when the guys that seem like they just, they like controversial things or they like talking about hell or things like, you know, just people who are like that, when they get to this, they're like, yeah, this one's rough. This is a little tough for us to wrap our minds around. Uh, but it's something that the new atheists have had a field day with. Uh, Richard Dawkins in The God Delusion said, the Bible story of Joshua's destruction of Jericho, which was the first uh, battle uh, that took place in the invasion of the promised land, and the invasion of the promised land in general is morally indistinguishable from Hitler's invasion of Poland or Saddam Hussein's massacres of the Kurds and the Marsh Arabs. The Bible may be an arresting and poetic work of fiction, but it is not the sort of book you should give your children to form their morals. As it happens, the story of Joshua and Jericho is the subject of an interesting experiment in child morality, and he's not alone. So this is why we want to tackle this, to really, really come face to face with some of the brutal stuff that we see and hear, and try to get a good understanding of it. Uh, When it comes down to it, it's really coming to three, uh, specific people or people groups, and one is Israel, God's chosen people, the Canaanites, the people who were in the land before Israel came up and occupied it, and God. And um, to get a good sense of this, you have to kind of do a little bit of history, just taking a look at things. You got Canaan up there, and they're occupying what we know now to be Israel or Palestine, that whole area, and Israel, God's chosen people. Now, Israel spent 400 years enslaved. Where Were they enslaved? Egypt. And did they stay slaves? oh, no, they got freed, which was awesome, and right away, they followed God's call, and they left Egypt, and they went straight up into the promised land, right, no, no, they decided that they kind of got one face, like, like, they put one head into the promised land, and they saw that everyone was ginormous, like, like, Craig Seiber, Nate's self, ginormous, okay, humongous, I think, uh, man, that's like, I know, we've been using you all the time, Nate, so, big, big enough that, that it was so big that, that, that they said, you know what, this is not, you know what, let's just stay out here in the desert. This is cool. And God's like, you want to stay here in the desert? You don't want to go up to the promised land? Fine. Go ahead and do that. And what ends up happening is they end up wandering around in that section for 40 years, four decades. They're just bing, ping-ponging, ricocheting around, and absolutely finding, like, why are we even following this God? Why are we even following Moses? Why don't we just stay back where we used to be? And God allowed all of them to die except for their kids. And their kids were were going to be the ones who were going to taste the promised land under the leadership of Joshua. So Joshua has the guts to follow God, and he leads up the Israelites to cross over the Jordan River right around here to enter into their first battle, which was in Jericho. And that's where they had the central campaign. They take out these uh, cities right here, they go on down to the southern campaign, take out those, and then they go, after renewing the covenant, they go back up to the northern campaign. This is the book of Joshua. If you want to read all throughout the bloodshed, all throughout the battle, Joshua, showing when, when they're following God and, and things are, they're successful and victorious, and when they're rebellious against God, things just go sideways quick. And at the end, right around 20 to 21 and following, you see Joshua splitting up the land into the 12 tribes and then they've, they've occupied the territory. But again, this is, this is difficult to sink our teeth into or at least wrap our brain around. When I grew up in Sunday school, this was totally easy to believe. And like it was, it, was, it was sterile. I mean, it was like flannel graph. So I mean, like you had, you know, flannel graph and like well, here's Joshua and he's got a big old spear and a sword and a shield and all this armor, and he's got all these people, and these are the good guys. And over here, you've got the Canaanites. They're bad. We're not even going to put them on the flower graph because it'd be too much red because of the blood. And, and and you didn't see it. It was just kind of like, oh, and we just did it. And you're like, oh, all right, that makes sense. Bad guys lose, good guys win. Woo-hoo! And that's, that's the Bible story until you get old enough to read it. There's a reason why Sunday school teachers don't read this stuff to the kids because it's R-rated. Okay, this stuff makes Mad Max look like the Smurfs. It's, just, it's, just, it's really something that's on a level of, whoa, that's, that's in the Bible. God, you told them to do that. They did this. This actually happened. It wasn't God telling them to do that and saying right before they, they strike. No, just kidding, don't do that. He, he didn't. And so the, the, the pushback that uh, Christians and non-Christians in the 21st century have to these accounts in scripture could kind of be summed up this way so strong and muscle-bound israel simply just decides to take it they enter in with machine guns or whatever the ancient equivalent was and begin mowing down innocent civilians who were just chilling on their own property probably sitting in lawn chairs in front of their garage minding their own business israel leaves no survivors and then has the audacity to invoke god and country and call themselves heroes justifying the massacre by saying their civilian is greater than the one that came before them. Isn't that typical? I mean, it's typical of religion. It's typical of world powers. It's typical of colonialists. Empire. Israel, is no, this whole God thing is no different than anything else. People using God to, to do whatever they want to do and to just reap and rape a land of all of its goodness. And that is just so, so typical. Either... If this, is, if, this, if this is something that is, uh, if this is what it says it is, clearly this isn't true. This can't be true. So let, as, as followers of God or whatever, let's just not believe this port, part. Or if it is accurate, if this is actually an accurate representation of what these people really believed God was like, well, then this God that you seemingly believe in isn't good at all. And what I believe, when we boil this all down, it has, it, what we're having is a massively, massively misconception of those three people, Israel, the Canaanites, and God. Have, have any of you ever been at like um, some type of an uh, amusement park where you've had a caricature drawn of yourself? Anyone? You can raise your hands. It's okay. Yeah. How'd that turn out? I was always so disappointed, because I saw like, all the celebrities, I'm like, yeah, that totally looks like Rodman. Yeah, that totally looks like this person or that person. And then they draw you, and you're like, what? <laughs> now, what they're doing, what they're looking for, when you're approaching them with money, they're looking at your face, and they're like, okay, what can I exploit on this face? And they're looking for something that stands out. They're looking for your nose, your ears, your hairline, whatever, your glasses. They wanna find something that they can exaggerate. Because their thought is, if, I, if you have a big nose and I draw a ginormous nose, everyone who sees it, like, yeah, that's about right. And, that, and that's what's going to be. It's a caricature. Every political cartoon, since political cartoons came out, didn't try to do a portrait of the president. They tried to have a caricature. So with George W. Bush, what was the thing that they showed him as? Big old ears. That's right. With Obama, President Obama, what do they have? Big old ears. Yeah, it's just, they're kind of getting bored. But that's, that's what they do. They try to find something that'll represent that person, but it's an exaggeration. When we come to the text the way that we often come to the text on this issue, when we say, I don't know if I could believe in the genocidal God of the Old Testament, we're simply, in all honesty, I believe that a big part of our problem is that we have a caricature of each of these three people that isn't accurate. It's not the full picture. It's, it's only in part. And so what we're going to do is we're going to unpack each one of those people to try to understand our misconceptions, starting just briefly here with God. We're going to come back to him at the end. But starting with the misconception of God, oftentimes when we read this section of the Bible and we look at it, we look at it from a a lens of being absolutely embarrassed of uh, who God seems to be in the Old Testament. It's almost like, man, I just, I'm really not a fan of Old Testament God. I love New Testament God. It's kind of like, it's, it's like, it's, it, it's like when you're having your friends over, but then you find out that your crazy uncle's there. And you're like, oh man, he's here. I really don't want my friends to think of my family about the crazy, and this is like graduation weekend, so we have a lot of crazy uncles here, so holla. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about. This is the family member that you're just like, Ugh, I don't want this to be at the graduation party. I don't want them to meet him. Can we just put them in my room? Here, play Xbox. And let them introduce, like, here's my grandma. She's awesome. That's what we do with the Bible. We're like, Old Testament God. I just, whatever you do, just stay away from the Old Testament for a good 15 years of your Christianity. And then when you've gotten to know God well enough, we're going to open the door and let, you know, Old Testament God out so you can really get to know him. But for the beginning part, just just know about Jesus, okay? Because seriously, this stuff is sketchy over here. And we do that. And the problem with that is, is that we absolutely miss represent the wholeness of who God is, number one. Number two, we, we, we really screw up the whole concept of, of our theology. It's almost like our theology is whatever we want to pick and choose from the Bible and that we can wrap our minds around. But that's not, that's not scripture. Scripture kicks all of us in the teeth. It helps all of us understand things about God that challenge us. And when we make, when we enter into the Bible and we start off with something about God, we're like, he's just unfair or he's unjust. What we're doing is we're, for me, I'm operating with 38 years of experience and I'm bringing that into an eternal experience and causing a judgment on it. Maybe like, have you ever walked in and seen a fight between two people, whether it's verbally or like throwing, throwing down fists and everything, and you formed instantly a judgment on who was right and who was wrong in that fight, only to find out later that you were totally wrong? You were bringing whatever evidence you had in your mind into that situation and drawing a conclusion Realizing, man, I really should have given that a little bit more airtime to process so I could understand the full picture of what's happening. That is what we're seeing in this passage. I want to argue that that this passage of Israel's entry into Canaan is pivotal for your understanding of the gospel, is pivotal and, and imperative for your understanding of how important and beautiful and wonderful Jesus is. That without this, if we just kind of censor this out and just take a big old marks a lot over this section of scripture and, and pretend like it's not there, we would be missing out and shortchanging ourselves of the reality of who God is. We'll get to him a little bit later, but let's go ahead and move into the misconception of the Israelites. We have, again, go back to the flannel graph. Joshua is, he's, he's got, he's totally re- well-resourced. Like, a, a misconception of the Israelites is that they are the powerhouse. They're the machine gun-toting, muscle-bound, merciless war heroes going into this battle. Into the conquest, they're the ones who've got the, the good stuff. And that could be further from the truth, and it couldn't be further from the way the Old Testament prophets describe their relationship with following God. The psalmist says in 20 verse 7, Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. That first part of there is talking about the resources you go to battle with. Some people put all of their trust in the government. They put all their trust in the military. And the reality is, is that that is not, as far as, as, as Israel is concerned, that's not where we are. They put all of their, their, their faith and, and, and belief into their ability to be defended by these people, but that's not us. We, we are not this resource-rich thing of the amount of resources we have is what dictates our confidence just to take a look at the at the contrast between the two, between Canaan and Israel, God's chosen people, you realize how radically off that caricature is. The Canaanites are resource-rich kids of the empire. Okay, you didn't just these aren't cabbage patch kids that just came up in the Promised Land and out of nowhere. Where, I don't know where they came from. These are kids who came from the empire of Mesopotamia. They're they're nomadic, but they're, they're coming from, uh, from the outlying empires, and they've had hundreds of years of development. They have home field advantage, and they have resources to prove it. Israel, on the other hand, have are slaves' kids. So you have the resource-rich kids of the empire and all of the incentives psychologically that that has coming, going into the battle, and you have slaves' kids and all the psychological baggage that that brings coming into a battle. For the Canaanites, you have military strategy-rich armies who have practiced tactics on real people versus, comparatively, Israel, who are nomadic desert people who've practiced on snakes. Major disadvantage here. The Canaanites, they're possessing the most advanced weaponry of the day. Israel is possessing whatever they could piece together in their wanderings in the past four decades. The Canaanites are ginormous, well, have well, ginormous, well-fed bodies, which have enjoyed the fruit of the Promised Land. Remember, God told Moses, the Promised Land is flowing with milk and honey. This place is. It has got the food for you. When the spies go into the land, they talk about the the fruit, like literally the fruit and everything else that helps this people group become so large. There's something about them that's well-fed and strong. They're at the golden corral saying, yeah, one more steak, please, over and over again. And that's the promised land. That's their physical stature versus Israel, who have bodies fed by the more minimalist diet of bread, manna, and rock water. The Canaanites have armor able to withstand intense impact. Israel has clothing worn by a homeless community for four decades. This is not a fair match. This is not something that we could look at and say, okay, yes, truly, they're resource rich. They are the machine gun toting war heroes people. No, they're not machine machine gun toting. They don't have those resources. Secondly, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. Some trust in, in the resources, in chariots, and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. It's not their muscles. It's not them like being able to say in bravado, look how strong we are. Israel had a perspective that this is God's that this is him. And we understand how God was trying to condition them to understand this by giving them absolutely ludicrous, loser war strategies over and over again. He doesn't give them, like, the best strategies. He gives them awful strategies. I mean, think about the stories we know from the Bible. Joshua and the Battle of Jericho. Okay, we have guys who are trying to get a couple things together. Okay, we're just going to, like, have a guerrilla warfare. We're going to come in there. We're going to ninja into the city, and we're going to take everyone out in the night. (laughs) And, th- and that's what's going to happen. No. God's like, no, here's what you're going to do. You're going to walk around the whole place seven times, seven days, making music and stuff. I mean, this is like, this is like it's like us going in to take out Osama bin Laden's compound. But instead of SEAL Team 6, we bring in like the Occupy Wall Street folks. <laughs> Come on, hippies. Come on. Come on. Come on. And then we bring them on over there and say, okay, guys, go to it. And the hippies go walk, occupy Wall Street. start walking around Osama bin Laden's compound like, "Hey Osama, it's cool, man. We're gonna fight you. But we're gonna fight you by making music." <laughs> but wait, then we're gonna shout real loud, <laughs> and it's over. That's what takes place in the, in Joshua one through six. It's it doesn't make sense. By design, it doesn't make sense. And then you get into the book of Judges. And you see this holy war thing of God is, is again, that, the, that Joshua wasn't the exception to the rule. It was the rule. In, in Joshua, we have Gideon. And Gideon, God's like, I want you to fight out the Midianites. And he's like, oh man, the Midianites, really? The Midianites? They're really brutal. And like, these guys are like trained in warfare. They're absolutely violent, vicious, bloodthirsty people. We're soft. Why do, we, why do you want us to go in there? Like, no, this is what you need to do. All right, how big is my army? 32,000. All right, well, that doesn't sound too bad. But I, here's the problem. You have too many people. Since when has, is too many people in a battle a bad thing? Well, it's a bad thing now. You need to liquidate out some people. So here, go tell people this. All right. If anyone here really isn't excited about battle today, you can go home. If anyone has a headache, or forgot to turn off the iron, you can go home. If you forgot to kiss your kid goodbye, go home. If you drink, if you drink water like a dog, go home. And people are like, "Sweet, I'm out of here," and they're gone. And all of a sudden, thirty-two thousand gets reduced to three hundred, less than one percent of the original army. And God says, "Perfect. That's the army that's going to defeat the Midianites." And Gideon's like, "For real?" Ryan Butler says it this way, this is not a battle strategy. This is a death wish unless God is doing the heavy lifting. Israel's battle strategies look ridiculous because they are designed to. They highlight that God is the only one doing the fighting. Let me repeat that this is not a battle strategy, it's a death wish, unless God is doing the heavy lifting. Israel's battle strategies look ridiculous, because they are designed to. They highlight that God is the one really doing the fighting. I mean, if you're thinking about, like, football, okay, like, just imagine in football, and I'm not talking about two NFL teams, one, like, like, the last uh, Super Bowl winners, the Patriots, okay, versus, I don't know, the Vikings or something, but let's just say, like, I'm not talking about, like, that type of disparity, I'm talking about, like, the Patriots versus the Chinooka Braves. Okay, if you don't know the, who the Chinooka Braves are, this is like an elite squad of kiddos. I got a helmet! You know, that type of thing. Jake, were you a Chinooka Brave? Yeah, you were. Okay, it's a little Chinooka Braves taking on the Patriots, and I don't care how inflated or deflated the ball is, the Patriots are gonna cream them. It, that's the way it is. It's just going to happen that way. And, that, and that's the, this, this absolute radically difference of, of, of looking at what's going on here. Um, and this is the, the thing that we see all throughout. Back when, when Israel was just being evacuated out of Egypt, how long were they enslaved for? 400 years and now they're finally gone. They've been oppressed under the boot of this Egyptian empire for 400 years. They they feared their life from these people and now they're running away from them and now they're they're stuck. They're stuck where? What, what's their blockade? The Red Sea. And who's coming? Pharaoh's army, do doo, in chariots with real weapons. Like things that you can throw from a good distance or shoot from a good distance and take them out. And all of a sudden, Moses turns to the people, and this is what he says. Moses answered the people, don't be afraid. Excuse me? We have Pharaoh and his army coming to massacre us. Don't be afraid. No, don't be afraid. Stand firm, and you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring you today. The Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. Right, because we're going to be dead, Moses. No, the Lord will fight for you. Hear this, the Lord will fight for you. You only need to be what? So to condition the people of God before they ever enter into the promised land, before they ever take on a battle, God says, I want to condition you with the way that I do holy war. Here's the, here's the strategy. Here's what you need to do. Nothing. Don't do anything. Simply obey. Do what I say. I'm going to give you the most hyperbolic, extreme example right at the beginning of you doing nothing And watching me come through and that's going to be the template for everything from here on out you need to tell your kids this because if you see this and understand that i'm the one working and it's not your might not your strength then you're going to understand how important it is that the way that i do holy war is radically different from every other ideology out there see every other ideology out there says this we will fight for god whether it's Islamic or it's the Christian crusaders, the idea is we will fight for God, for God and country. We're going to do this for God. We're going to take these people out for God. We're going to acquire this land for God. We're going to pillage this for God. And that's not the perspective we see in the Old Testament regarding what, what God is calling his people to do. Instead, Israel was saying, God will fight for us. It is in our weakness that he becomes strong. It is, it is in his power, and his righteousness, that we have actually the ability to move forward. So these people are not machine gun-toting individuals with all the resources, and they're not muscle-bound. That's not their story. They are outnumbered and weak, but God is using them anyway. And they're also not war heroes. I mean, even just think about the, the, the epic tale of uh, David and Goliath. This is, again, showing us that God's pattern is consistent here. He's not setting up these amazingly strong people and, and, and incredibly fantastically huge armies. He uses the little guy versus the big guy. If you want to know, like, God's strategy for holy war, Old Testament style, it looks like this. Uh, Ryan Butler put this out and he said, so if you want to fight a real holy war, here's what you do. Number one, throw away your armor. If you're looking at the, David's example, that's the first thing you do. Second thing you do, burn your tactical training books. Three. Find the cheapest, most ineffective weapons you can. Four, visit a rehab center and find military leaders with issues. Five, hire a reporter to meticulously track all of your flaws and failures. Six, boast to your enemies about how backward your civilization is. Seven, go to the biggest, baddest superpower who will surely kick your tail. Eight, pick a fight. Nine walk into the middle of the battlefield. And 10, pray that God shows up. That's holy war. That's God's style of holy war. It's not this massively just drawn out, ugly. It is this, it is a surgical strike of weakness of us and the strength of God. And and just to bat that home, all the way through scriptures you see this, but there's one passage where God just beats that drum over and over and over again about this is not about you and how awesome and how holy and how righteous and how epic and wonderful and good-looking you are and how massively bad and evil they are. They are massively bad and evil. I am judging them, but it's not of how good you are that this is all taking place. We see that in Deuteronomy. Check this out. Look at how many times... Um, through Moses, this is made clear. After the Lord your God has driven them out before you, do not say to yourself, the Lord has brought me here to take possession of this land because of my righteousness. No, it is on account of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is going to drive them out before you. It's not because of your righteousness or your integrity that you are going to take possession of their land, but on account of the wickedness of these nations, the Lord your God will drive them out before you to accomplish what he swore to your, four, to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Understand then, as if you didn't understand it like the previous eight times I said it, understand then that it is not because of your righteousness that the Lord your God has given you this good land to possess for your stiff-necked people. It's almost like right there at the end, like, you get what I'm saying? <laughs> okay, now you got it? This is not because of you. It's because of how awesome and righteous God is and how wicked they are. This is God's judgment. This is not your hands, your work. It is his. That's the big picture that we're seeing here, okay? We are understanding that this, this reality is something that is under, this is, this is God setting up his people to make a massive point. They are storming the beaches of, you're storming the beaches, bum rushing the beaches of Normandy all by yourself with a super soaker, and, and that's going to be the story that get, gets told. So these guys are not, Israel is not the machine gun toting, muscle bound war heroes. And they're also not merciless. And this is tough because, I mean, there's passages where, where God actually tells them not to, to not show mercy. And, you know, to not like get to a point of saying, second guessing what God's calling them to do. Now there's, there's people, a lot of scholars, this week I, I was reading over so much stuff on this that it was just people are really separated and, and they disagree on some of this stuff where they believe that a majority, and this may be very true, a majority of those cities were actually military, military uh, compounds full of combatants. Not like, go into Shanahan and take everyone out type of thing. But they are actually battling up massive uh, battalions of combatants um, primarily. And there's other people that, that say that the, uh, the language of men, women, um, and children and livestock was not a uh, recipe for who you're supposed to pick off, but rather an a expression of totality. Take out everything that you come across. But there's enough passages that I'm, when I was doing the, just going over and over all these different passages, that seemed to say, no, God, God was going up against battalions and compounds, and he was going up against these villages. That It was army guys who who Israel was in a position sometimes of defending themselves against, and sometimes it was taking everyone out, every living thing. So how could they, I mean, how could you get anything but merciless out of that? And that's tough. But I would say that that in the midst of what God was calling them to do, there's some amazing realities. First off, the way that he was calling them to wage war was so radically different and, and and merciful compared to what was going on in the world at that time. And we've talked about this before, but it's amazing that we, sometimes some of the hard passages of the Old Testament we read and are offended by, but, the, but this time, which would be right around in the 1400s to 1200s, um, that time was a period of time that there was uh, things would, they would read this and, and be, have a, an exact opposite perspective. For example, when you're waging war, God is calling his people and through Moses, when you're waging war and you go into a city and, and you're, you're pillaging and you're, you're plundering what, what's there, he actually re- he minimalizes what they're able to take. He tells them you can't take any of this. And this stuff that you take, it's not going to be for you. It's going to be for the temple. It's going to be for something else. So he minimizes the greed that would, would normally um, fuel further bloodshed by saying, no, that's not going to happen. I'm going to reduce that to de- disincentivize war in this situation. It's very common for every community and every culture to go in and rape the people that are there. The husband's been killed on the battlefield and you just go and have your way with whoever you want and then you kill them and you keep moving on or you just leave them be. And God's like, that's not the way it's going to happen. You go into a community and you have sex with a woman. She's your wife. You give her a period of time to mourn for the husband who's died on the battlefield and then you give her every benefit that you would give your own wife. She's no longer a foreigner. She's yours. She's your people. With all the blessings, all the inheritance, everything else, she's part of you. To which the people would say, that's, that's not fair. Everyone else does war totally different. And God's like, exactly. You are not everyone else. You are my people. And the way that you conduct yourself, even in war, is going to shock people by the that ability for, the, for you to express mercy and grace and humanity that other people are not. And even on the whole concept of wiping out these villages, one of the things that we see 50 times or more in the Old Testament is God calling them to drive them out. Now, is there, is there, is there killing taking place? Absolutely. And, and so they would come into a village and take it all out. As the word is spreading, what ends up happening is not as much just a massacre of the entire land, but a, a driving out, kind of evicting the really drunk person off the dance floor. Okay, dude, you need to get out of here. And there's an eviction taking place out of the country and moving out. And we know that that's the case because we see these people come in contact with the is- Israel's people later on in the story, later on in the Old Testament account. So they weren't completely wiped out on those first, first three uh, campaigns. God is driving them out. And even in the periods of time where they're taking out completely laying waste to all the living things in a community, there's even mercy in that. And this is why. In the ancient world, there's a thing called blood retribution, the blood retribution principle, which said that if you are attacked and your parents are taken out or, or your community is taken out and you're the one that's living, if you're a baby or you're a kid or whatever, you're the one that's living, you are morally and legally bound to make it your life mission to go and find those oppressors, those attackers, those occupiers, and murder them and take them out and their children, which would cause this other side to have the blood retribution principle and eventually come and attack them and back and forth it would go and what God was saying is no this is not an ongoing warfare that I'm calling you to this is not a genocidal movement that I want you to do this is a surgical strike to get rid of everything right here right now and that way shalom can eventually come into this land this is my judgment and you're going to be that you're going to be the people that are taking that Which brings us to the misconceptions of those people, the Canaanites. Again, it's really easy for us to, you know, pit these folks as folks that are just innocent bystanders sitting around tanning in the sun telling each other how beautiful they are. But that's not the case. They actually had an origin. Um, We look at in the book of Genesis, um, God uh, talking to Abraham when Abram was in the promised land. He's left his hometown, now he's in the promised land, and this happens— As the sun was setting, Abram fell into a deep sleep, and a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. And then the Lord said to him, Know for certain that for 400 years your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and that they will be enslaved and mistreated there. Where is that? Egypt. In the fourth generation, 400 years later, your descendants will come back here, for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. Now I've preached on this passage, but the sin of the Amorites and the Amorites was something that was so backburner to whatever I was talking about. It wasn't even really important. I was more focusing on the fact that Abram was given this promise by God that that his God was telling him, "Your kids are going to be enslaved, but don't worry about that. Four hundred years later, they're going to come back to this land and they're going to take it over. This is my promise." And even though we may not be really familiar with the Amorites, Abraham was—he knew these guys. See, these guys were the guys that were the bullies in his hometown, the place that he came from. Let's go back to the map. Abram is, I, Abraham is in the land right there, the promised land where we see Israel uh, in that section. God is promising him that after 400 years, his kids are going to come back and take over that land. Uh, before that, Abraham, he didn't grow up in Israel, in, in that area. He was born in the Mesopotamian area of Ur, of the Chaldeans, or also known as Babylon. The Amorites came from this area. They actually were the guys who started Babylon, the really early primitive version of it, but it was them. Whenever you read Babylon, it uses a metaphor for the absolute most vile, vicious, witchcraft, pagan-ridden, uh, bloodthirsty, rapist culture. The seeds of that were, were in Abraham's hometown with the Am- Amorites. And so God calls him out of that place, out of a pagan village, to go westward into the promised land, saying, this is going to be your land. But guess what? One day, your kids are going to be leaving this land, and they're going to be out of the land for 400 years. And you know what? The people that you left back in your hometown, the bullies and all those other guys, they're going to follow you. And eventually, this people group is going to spread into this whole area and start to assimilate in with other tribes and the barbarism that is in that tribe is going to continue to grow and grow and grow. And for 400 years, I'm going to wait till their sin has reached its full maximum potential before I judge them. Now here's an interesting thing that we have to see in that. God is expressing patience with the Amorites for 400 years. 400 years with an opportunity to turn to God. 400 years to recognize the absolute um, ludicrous evilness Evil ways of of how they're occupying themselves and turn to God. And for 400 years, he expresses patience. Patience. I don't have patience for 400 seconds. And God expresses patience for 400 years. And on top of that, he allows his kids to be enslaved for 400 years and subjugated and oppressed while waiting for the Amorites to turn until their sin got to the point where it's at its full measure. And he used his kids, this imperfect bunch of ex slaves to take over the land, which was theirs in the, to begin with, to take over the spot that God had promised Abraham to reoccupy the land. When we zoom out to the mighty empires of the ancient world, it's almost as if God is intentionally choosing the smallest, weakest, most vulnerable, helpless, and powerless nation he can to demonstrate the, to the mightiest, Wickedest, bloodiest, nastiest powerhouse empires of the day, that there is a message he wants to send loud and clear to the ancient world. And the message is this. I am God. I am just. I, have, I hate sin. I have wrath. And I'm going to deal with it. And I'm going to deal with it through weakness. I'm going to show you that it is not man's strength. It's not man's righteousness, but my own, that I am. In me, there is life. Outside of me, there is death. And I'm going to use this people group, as the front porch, as, as the model home of both my judgment and my grace. That was the message he's communicating loud and clear, that was sent throughout the world. Which brings us back to the misconception of God. Again, the misconception is that he's just just so unfair and just. I don't get why, you know, it just doesn't seem very fair that God would do this. To which I would say, you're absolutely right. It is absolutely unfair but in a different way than we we usually come at it. See, God would be completely justified if he would have said, you know what? There's not a single person bearing my holiness on this planet. I'm gonna wipe clean the entire place and He would have been totally justified, no matter what age. But he didn't. That's totally unfair. It doesn't seem to be bearing the concept of justice, but he did it anyway. It would have been, it was totally unfair that God would be so patient with people that were so messed up. For 400 years, he expressed his patience to them. And how on top of that unfair, that he allowed his own kids to be subjugated for that period of time while he's expressing that amazing amount of patience to those people. Unfair. But you see, with God, unfairness and justice looks different. God's unfairness shows up as unmerited grace and undeserved patience, not a lack of justice. See, when God is unfair, it's to our advantage each and every time. And the other thing that that if I'm talking to people that have issues with this passage, and I mean, honest, I've got issues with this passage. These are tough passages. You don't get up and believe this stuff because like this is what I would have written in the Bible. You believe it because it's true. And in the parts that you struggle with, you say, okay, God, I'm gonna need you to work this out in my heart but I'm following your lead, but when I'm talking with folks, it'd either be an unfair, or, or that God really is a, this racist, xenophobic individual, just this massive, like, nationalistic, yeah, my people, the Israelites, booyah, it's all about them, everyone else can just do whatever they want, they can just die on the vine, I don't care. We see that it's not the case at all. In fact, we see just the opposite. We see that God is battling a toxic ideology, not a people group. We know this because he allows, in the midst of that campaign, for people within that, that people group to join them. Re, uh, Rahab. You have Rahab, who is a prostitute, in Jericho, and she gets, she helps God's people out and she actually gets to be assimilated into God's people. The Canaanite, pay, previously pagan individual, who is a prostitute gets to be brought into the family line and not only the family line scripture makes very clear that they wanted to point out the fact when they get to jesus's genealogy who's in the family line who's a direct descendant of him who's an ancestor of him rahab the canaanite prostitute you have ruth the moabite you have all throughout the Old Testament, once the surgical strike of the entrance into, the, into Canaan takes place, God's mission for his people is to, again, you just expressed the wrath of God as judgment. You were my arm of judgment to these people, but now you're going to be the arm of truth and grace to them. You, when you meet foreigners, he, people who are illegal aliens in your land, you treat them differently than everyone else does. That is how I'm calling you to do. That's how I'm calling you to live. When, when you have Jesus talking in Luke chapter 4... He's talking to a bunch of religious people in Nazareth. And he says, you know what the deal? You know, I don't know what the deal is with you guys. Don't you remember back, I- I- back in our own history? When Elijah, when Elijah, when there was a famine across the land and the sky was shut off, he didn't go around and help people. He didn't help any of the widows in Israel. Who did he go and help? A foreigner. A foreigner widow. When Elisha was walking around, there's tons of people with leprosy. Did he go around and help people with leprosy? Nope. He helped he helped Naaman, the Syrian, our enemy, the foreigner." All throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament, God's mission is, you are my ambassadors of who I am to the world, that the world may know. And we see that continue on. The part that we love about the Bible is when we see Jesus coming in and talking about that and making that possible. God's battle is battling a toxic ideology, not a people group. He battled that rebellion in every people group, including Israelites. All throughout Leviticus, he says, look, this thing that we were against with the Canaanites... If you guys do this, the same judgment's going to be on you. This is not a xenophobic or bigoted or racial move. This is a ideology rebellion move. The guy is saying, look, there's no rebellion with me. That's how it's going to work. And ultimately, and this is the most profound aspect of it, ultimately he turned that battle upon himself to rescue people in every ethnic group. Jesus took all of the judgment, all of the wrath, all of the sin, he took that upon himself on the cross so that every people group would know in him when he rose from the grave what did he say he said and you will be my ambassadors and you will be that you will be the ones making disciples you're going to be the ones telling them about this amazing unmerited unfair grace that i'm expressing to you and you're going to be my witnesses here in jerusalem with all these jewish religious people and in judea and samaria where there's people that are racially different than you and to the ends of the world where there's people that are doing things that just make you want to vomit but you're going to love them anyway that's what's going to happen that is this boom, 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 moving out and so when I'm, when I'm reading through the, the conquest of Canaan, do I struggle with it? Yes. There's parts that, again, I have a hard time believing, but that doesn't mean that I, don't be- I can't believe in a God who would do these things. It just makes it tough to understand why God would do these things. But honestly, at the end of the day, I'm looking at them and I'm seeing this. I'm seeing a just God who cares so much about sin that he's, and that he's not looking the other way. This is like the father walking into a room where his daughter is being defiled and he is taking out the combatant combatant who's doing this, this invasion. God is just. He has a perspective on sin that is higher than mine. But not only is he just, he's also patient. If God is willing to look in the face of the most evil empire in humanity and have 400 years of patience, there's not anything that you have done that could compare to that. There's not a single thing that you've done in your life or, or anyone in, in proximity to you that you could say, yeah, God just can't forgive this. I just, I, I'd start following God more, but I, I just feel so guilty about this. Really? 400 years of patience with the most vile people on the planet. He can handle your sin. He's patient. Not only is he patient, he's wise. When I when I read the, the, these accounts, I see a God who's using a surgical strike to avoid an ongoing battle that goes on forever and ever, making His people instead of His chosen people who are weak into some war heroes, war mongering people who are just ongoing, perpetuating blood. And that, that's not what He's doing. He de de-incentiv- incentivizes warfare so that shalom can ultimately come into the land. And finally, He's generous. When his people had the opportunity to be in that land, that was going to be the incubation of the greatest hope on the planet, Jesus. That out of this land would come the one that was going to be the savior of the entire world, no matter who you are, no matter what you've done, no matter what your past is, no matter what's been done to you, that this savior was gonna be someone who's gonna give you hope and a future. That it was gonna be him and him alone, his righteousness. So at the end of the day, as Christians, if you're a Christian, Don't try to simply just explain away this stuff by saying, well, it must not mean what it says it means. Or I just don't want you to read that part of the Bible because it's really, really embarrassing and sketchy and hard to explain. It's complicated. Instead, say, you know what? This is a complicated part of the Bible. But when I'm reading it, at the end of the day, these are the things I'm seeing about this God that I serve, because I'm seeing the God of the entire Bible being present presented, not just this one caricature, not just this one frame, the whole picture, the whole movie. And God doesn't call me to understand everything that he does. He simply calls me to trust him. To out of faith follow his lead. And that's what he's calling you to do today. There's not a single person on this planet who's, who's followed God who understands him completely. That's not part of the equation. This is. Amen? Amen. Let's stand for prayer. Lord, we understand that, that we don't understand we completely get that, that we are limited, um, we know that you want us to know you, we know that you record things in scripture so that, that we can uh, just plumb the depths of, of our own mental understanding with the Holy Spirit's help to be able to learn about your character and your justice and, and your, your love and your generosity and your mercy and your truth the things that, that we can wrap our, our arms around so easily and the things that are just really difficult and precarious but they're still there Lord, I pray that you rise up a people who trust you first and foremost. That you eliminate the excuses from our minds and our lips. Instead, you create a people who are trusting the Savior of the world. And when we see the fruit of that, we we'll give you the thanks and the glory. It's in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.